Good morning. I bring you greetings from your brothers and sisters at Lexington Presbyterian Church, where I and my family have worshipped for many years. And uh, I, I feel like I've followed your church from the beginning, um, actually from even before David and Julie were married. Both of them were students in my class, so I like to think maybe that class brought them together, but probably not. Um, Kevin Bolin was one of my first humanities students back in the day. And Elizabeth Davis was a long-term co-worker at CIU. And, uh, and LPC, uh, there were uh, several who came over from our church to help start this church. Uh, so I've really wanted to visit you for a long time. I just kind of wanted to visit in the pew and not <laughs> as preacher. This is my first time with you, and I'm really thrilled to be here. So I just bring you greetings in the Lord uh, today. And um, our sermon text today is Ephesians chapter 6, if you want to turn there, uh, verses 10 through 17, but we're especially going to focus on the second half of verse 17. I'm sorry, I've reached that age where I have to pull out these Walmart glasses (laughs) um, to read this. Um, This is God's word, eternally true. Ephesians 6, beginning in verse 10. Finally... Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God." And if you can turn in your Bibles to Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, following First and Second Timothy and Titus, uh, Hebrews chapter 4, um, we're focusing on the sword of the Spirit today, and beginning with verse 12 and 13 in Hebrews 4. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, that you have given us uh, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Lord, this is your word. It is uh, so valuable to us. We need it every hour of every day. And we pray today as we, um, as we meditate on this verse, what the sword of the spirit, the word of God is, and what it does for us. We pray that you would give us the mind of Jesus Christ. We pray that you'd remove from us all distractions. We pray that you would open up and make your word glorious and precious powerful and effective in our lives, that you would destroy the work of the evil one. He would want to come in and steal and destroy souls, and we pray that you would protect us against his devices. 
And Holy Spirit, we pray for your illumination because without it, we cannot understand your word. So we pray that you would open up your word to us. Help us to see wonderful things in your law. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, you who are our strength and our redeemer. Amen. So you remember that uh, George Gershwin song from Porgy and Bess that goes summertime and the living is easy, probably. And that's what we're supposed to think about summer. But I've found that summertime has been the most difficult season for me and for my family. It's full of spiritual attacks from all sides. And we're especially vulnerable in the summer because our guard goes down. And so here's a summertime reminder not to go to the beach without taking along the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. Paul says in Ephesians 6 that we need to take up the full armor of God so we can stand against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. We're told to stand firm in the evil day. We're to be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Our focus today will be on the sixth and final part of the Christian's armor, the sword. We should notice how all the parts of armor... The belt and the breastplate and the shield and the helmet are connected with the conjunction and. It's a total suit of armor. Every part is joined together, and we need every part of it for the spiritual war that we're in. But the last part, the sword, is the essential equipment that makes a soldier uh, into someone who can fight. A soldier is not a soldier without his sword. So let's begin with a picture that shows us the special virtue of swords. This summer, I wanted to get back into Middle Earth again. It had been too long since I had been in Middle Earth. And for you Tolkien fans out there, this is for you. Um, At the end of The Two Towers, the second part of The Lord of the Rings, uh, I don't want to give anything away if you haven't read the books yet. Read the books before you watch the movies. It's probably too late for most of you. Um, At the end of part two... Uh, uh, you know that Gollum has lured Sam and Frodo into Shelob's lair. And you know that Shelob is this huge man-eating spider, venomous spider. Um, And anyway, they uh, go in, they don't know what they're up against, they're in the darkness, and all of a sudden there are all these beady eyes looking at them, and they're in deep trouble. And um, they are absolutely no match for this monster, So, of course, they do what we all would do in that situation. Thank goodness we're not faced with that kind of situation with our little household spiders. Um, They turn tail and they run like crazy. And as they run, they realize that they can't possibly outrun this thing. This is a a massive and fast-moving spider. So they realize all they can do is kind of turn around and stand and face it. And then, of course, they think, and this doesn't take long, but... They think, what are the weapons that we have? And they have two things. They have the light that Galadriel gave them in Lothlorien, the light for dark places. Um, And they have Frodo's little sword called Sting. It's a great sword. I don't have time to go into the history of Sting. Uh, Sting is a wonderful sword, but it's a little sword. And so Frodo has Sting, and they have the light. They pull out the light, and they temporarily blind the monstrous spider, right? Um, but that only lasts so long. Um, The spider is not deterred by the light. Um, The spider starts to attack Frodo, and anyway, long story short, wraps him up in a cocoon while injecting venom into him, 
and is going to eat him for lunch later on. Sam's in some corner of the cave, and then Sam gets this burst of courage that is probably mostly desperation. Um, You know that Sam is totally devoted to Frodo. And so he runs at the spider. He sees Frodo's sword lying there on the ground. He picks up the sword, and he gets underneath the spider. Do you remember this? (laughs) Um, And and he's underneath the spider, and the the spider's like, what's this pesky thing underneath me? And, And Sam's slashing at the underside of the spider, but the spider has really thick hide, and there's nothing really that the sword can do other than score the hide. Um, But the spider thinks, okay, this is a pesky creature. I'm just going to heave up my body and smash the thing underneath me, right? And in the moment when the spider heaves up the body, I'm so sorry I'm giving this away for those of you who haven't read it. As As she heaves up her body to smash Master Samwise, he's not really thinking. But the only thing that he does is he takes that sword and he holds it over his head. Remember that? And she comes down with her full weight on the point of that sword, and it deals her a mortal wound. And I think that's kind of a picture that I want you to see here with take up the sword of the spirit. The virtue is not in Master Samwise. It's not because he's such a great fighter. The virtue lies in the power of that little sword. And the sword wins the battle. And, um, and that's what I want us to think about as we go through this today, um, that the sword makes all the difference in the fight, that things look hopeless until the sword deals the decisive blow against the enemy and the enemy slinks away in defeat. So there are four things that I want us to observe here as we go through this text. Uh, first, the uniqueness of the sword compared to the other su- uh, parts of the armor. Second, why the word of God is called the sword of the spirit. Third, what the sword does. And fourth, how we can learn to use this sword. So first, the uniqueness of the sword. Uh, The sword is different from the five parts of armor that come before it in two ways, if you think about it. Um, The other parts, the helmet, the breastplate, the belt, they protect certain parts of the body from attack. Um, The sword is protective, but the sword protects the whole body from attack, right? Um, So, first of all, it protects the entire body. But um, the really important part about the sword is that of of all those six pieces of armor, the sword is the only offensive weapon. All the other parts, the helmet, the breastplate, the belt, uh, the feet that are shod, um, the shield of faith, um, they are all protective and they all guard, um, but you can't really kill enemies. I guess maybe some you could bludgeon with the shield, um, but you can't really kill the enemy without the sword. So the sword is the one offensive weapon um, in that um, suit of armor. It allows the soldier to go on attack. Of course, it's protective. It can parry the enemy's blows, but its great virtue is that it is the only thing that can put the enemy to death. So let's imagine that we're holding up one of these Roman swords right now, Um, Roman sword, that Paul is talking about here in this metaphor. It's about two to three feet long. It has a hilt where the hand can get a good strong grip on it. It's razor sharp on both edges, and it has a sharp tip at the end. It's made of tempered steel forged in a furnace. It gleams in the light of the sun. It is sheathed in the scabbard that the soldier wears 
on his belt, and where the sword cuts and penetrates, its stroke is swift and precise and deep, and we can add deadly. So why is the word of God called the sword of the spirit? First, the word is a person. The word is Jesus Christ. John 1.1 says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. This word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory full of grace and truth. So the word of God is the person of Jesus Christ. And the word of God is also the sum total of all of God's declarations in the Bible. The Bible is the word of God. It's without error in all its parts. It's totally reliable and sufficient for us. And if you look at Revelation chapter 1 and chapter 19, you see Jesus as the conquering king with a sword coming out of his mouth. And with this sword, Jesus destroys all of his enemies. The spirit is Christ's sword. That's why it's the word of God. That's why the word of God is the sword of the spirit. God's revealed word is given to us by the spirit and through the spirit. The spirit inspires the word. All scripture is inspired by God or God breathed, Paul tells Timothy. Men wrote as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, writes Peter. And the Spirit interprets and implies the scriptures to our hearts. Um, I recently finally received my PhD at USC after many long years of drudgery. Um, But I can tell you that what's interesting about getting a PhD is to realize that you can have a doctorate and not understand a single word that you read in the Bible. And you can be a five- or six-year-old child and have no formal education and understand the Bible. And the reason is that without the help of the Holy Spirit, we can't understand the Word of God. The Holy Spirit gives us the Word. It's inspired through the Holy Spirit. But every time you read the Word, the Holy Spirit is the one who reveals truth in it and reveals the will of God through it. So... Um, And also, whenever we read the word, the spirit is always pointing to and magnifying Jesus Christ. Uh, The spirit is the sword that comes out of Jesus' mouth. And that sword reveals and it magnifies the power and the beauty of Jesus in the scriptures. So this is very important. The word and the spirit always belong together. And some people want the spirit, but they don't want the word. So they look for dreams and signs and prophecies and visions, but they ignore what the Bible plainly teaches. And this is mysticism, and it leads really quickly to error, spirit, great spiritual error. And some study the word, but they neglect the Holy Spirit. Um, and this can also lead to a cold, lifeless legalism, kind of an intellectual legalism. It's pretty ugly as well. There are two ways that we can fall off here. We keep the spirit and the word together because they always belong together. The uh, word of God is the sword of the spirit. The things of the spirit are spiritually discerned. We can only see them when God opens the eyes of our hearts and no one but the spirit can do that for us. So we need the word and the spirit together. The word of God is perfect. It's without error. It's totally trustworthy and it's completely sufficient for our lives. It's the special ministry of the Holy Spirit to regenerate sinners' hearts and give them spiritual life and understanding through the word. Are you convinced of this this morning? Have you been pierced to the heart 
with the sword of the Spirit. Thirdly, what are some of the things that the sword does? So let's look at some of the operations of this excellent sword. We've noticed that swords have defensive and offensive purposes. They protect and guard and they attack. So in Psalm 119, verse 11, where it says, Your word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. That's the protective use of the word. The word protects us from sin. And when Peter boldly preaches after Pentecost in Acts 2, we see the sword going on offense, the sword going on attack. And it's interesting that the response of the people on that day was that when they heard this, it says they were pierced to the heart. Do you hear the language? They were pierced to the heart and they cried out, what must we do to be saved? So the sword defends and the sword attacks. Hebrews 4, 12 to 13, which we read, explains um, that really well. The word is living and active, and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's like a surgeon's scalpel. It cuts, it divides, it discriminates between veins and tissue. It penetrates where nothing else can go, into the deepest, most secret places of the heart. It exposes and kills hidden sins. It puts Satan and his devils to flight. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. So we have three great enemies as Christians. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Let's briefly consider how we need the sword against each of these three enemies. First, the devil, Satan, and the demons. Matthew 4, if you read it, shows how Jesus in the wilderness put the devil to flight by quoting scripture three times. We see how Satan hates the sword of God's word because it exposes and judges him. Again, in Revelation 19, the sword coming out of Jesus' mouth alone defeats the whole hellish crew. Throughout the Gospels, we see how terrified the demons are by the sword of the Spirit. We must never underestimate the attacks of our accuser and our adversary, Satan. Satan is is bent on our destruction But he knows very well that God's word has already defeated him. And though um, they might not know that they are being used by Satan for his devices, the sword is also effective against those who persecute the church. In many countries of the world, um, but also in our own, though in more subtle ways than in Turkey, for example, where Andrew Brunson is still being held prisoner, Christians face intense persecution. The Apostle Paul was once one of the persecutors of the word, Jesus Christ. But Paul found that the sword of the word cuts two ways. It cuts one way by judging God's enemies, and it cuts another way in Paul's life by converting them. By converting them into adopted children. Both are actions of the sword of the Spirit which lays the conscience bare before God and which kills the old man to give new life. The prophesying of the word convinces unbelievers. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14 that if in a church an unbeliever enters the church service and hears the word proclaimed, the spirit can bring him under conviction. And Paul writes that the secrets of his heart are disclosed and falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. That is the sword of the Spirit entering somebody's heart in worship. And maybe you've experienced that before. 
Um, I, I experienced that multiple times as a graduate student in the early days in, in Bloomington, Indiana, sitting and being pierced by God's word and just sitting in the pew weeping tears of conviction of sin. And it, it's strange to say that that's a beautiful thing, but it's a beautiful thing. If you've experienced, you know how beautiful it is. And we have the enemy of our flesh, right? So we have the devil and we have our flesh. Uh, We have our temptations and our lusts. The power of sin in us is defeated when God gives us a new heart. When he changes our heart, takes our heart of stone, gives us a heart of flesh, we are no longer under the power of sin. But you all know, brothers and sisters in Christ, that we will always be under the presence of sin until the day that we die. And we will be struggling against sin, fighting it until our dying breath. This battle with sin is constant in our hearts and minds. The great Puritan John Owen, in his book, Mortification of Sin, wrote... And this is really nice and simple. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. In other words, there's no rest from that fight. We're either fighting sin, or we're being overcome by it. Um, Sin never sleeps. And um, this, um, only the Spirit working through the Word has the power to put our deeply rooted sins to death. St. Augustine, in his great book, The Confessions, Um, could not free himself from his slavery to lust until underneath a a, a tree in northern Italy, he read Romans 13, verses 13 and 14. You don't have to turn there right now, but you can write it down. Romans 13, 13 to 14. And um, that scripture was the sword that he says broke the chains that were tying him to the slavery to lust. And he put it to death in his heart. He would continue to struggle with it. But the word of God was the thing that gave him power to overcome it. And that is the power of the word against our temptations and our lusts. But there's another thing that we fight with in our flesh. And I would say this is a constant. And it's our temptation to unbelief and to fear. Um, Our chief temptations in times of great trial are fear and unbelief and despair. Um, we as a family have tasted some of that this summer. And in these darkest of valleys, we need the promises of God to put a sword to our fears, don't we? And to give us courage to press on. So in that great book, Pilgrim's Progress, when Christian and hopeful fall into doubting castle and they're being pummeled every day by the giant despair, the only thing that can open up the dungeon doors, and that can slay that giant is the word of God, and specifically the key of promise that, that Christian has in his heart. The key of promise is Bunyan's way of saying, what kills that giant despair are the promises of God. And yes, guys, the Bible is not written specifically to us. It is written to different people in ages long past. But you know what? As a Christian... You can take every promise that you find in the Bible and you can claim it for yourself. And that is a sword against your fears and your despair and your unbelief. Finally, against the lies of the world, right? The, uh, the world, the flesh, and the devil. 
We live in the world. We can't get away from the world. Bunyan's picture for that is, um, you know, that whole racket um, called Vanity Fair. And we live in a time where confusion is rampant and it's viral thanks to social media. And the word of God cuts with clarity through all the vapors of confusion. The word says, the world says, sorry, that greatness is exerting power over others. But Matthew 20, 26 says that greatness is found in a life of service. He who would be the greatest is the servant of all, Jesus says. That is completely contrary to what the world teaches. And it just slices through it, right? So I'm told that on Facebook, you can identify yourself by means of 50 genders now. But, you know, that's probably over 50 by now. But when you read Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, it says that when God created them, he created them male and female. And there's just this wonderful simplicity and sharpness to male and female that just cuts through the vapors and the fog and the complete confusion of our culture. We need it. We might need to unplug from social media and pick up the word of God. It speaks with clarity and with power. Christianity is not a spineless sentimentality. It gives the Christian soldier a sharp spiritual blade, not a wet noodle. We live in a soft age that despises hard things, but Jesus, the Prince of Peace, said that he came to bring a sword. The strange thing is that the sword that Jesus brings is the only thing that can give peace to our hearts and to the world. It's the only sword that heals as it cuts. And of course, the wonder of the word is that it's not just a sword, it's also a trumpet that warns a light in the darkness, water in the desert, bread in famine, honey that gladdens the heart, and a balm that heals our deepest hurts. The word is useful for every task and every situation of life. We can use it for a lifetime and never discover all of the operations of the sword of the spirit. Finally, how do we learn to use this sword? Well, in times of great spiritual awakening, if you study the history of the church, the spirit makes the word come alive and God's people give themselves to studying and proclaiming it. Swords are not meant to be hung on museum walls or stuck in a sheath or displayed as home decorations. Swords are made for battle. And Paul says we're in the battle all the time, though we're not always aware of it. Paul tells Timothy that all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate and equipped. So growing in grace must mean that we learn to use the sword. The first lesson in this school is the lesson of humility. St. Augustine in the Confessions said that he couldn't understand the Bible when he first read it because he was too proud to understand it. The Spirit had to humble him first. It's only those who've been pierced to the heart with the sword of the Spirit who can know anything of its power. When we enter humbly into the school of Christ, we come to recognize the power and authority of his word and our desperate need for it. So it's our great sense of need that drives us to study and meditate on it. Discipline and spontaneity are both helpful. The discipline is helpful 
for when we're feeling dry and we don't feel like reading the Bible, which in my case is quite often. But it's especially at those dry times don't we need to be reading it. And so what has helped me for many years is a Bible reading program. I, I need it. It's not a legalistic thing for me. It's, it's simple need. I need to be in those parts of scripture that are not my favorite passages. Do you know what I mean? I need to be, I love that you're reading through the whole word of God. Is that right? And that's great. That's a great picture because it's all God's word. It's all useful. Even those lists of names in first Chronicles. And we need to read all of it. And so what helps me to stay in the word is the discipline of a Bible reading program. And I really encourage you to look into that if discipline and reading the Bible is a struggle for you. I've used the McChain Bible calendar for many years. It's been so helpful to me. But spontaneity is important too, right? Um, To be able to, based on whatever trial we're going through, be able to find those places in scripture that are going to really help us in that trial. So the discipline doesn't rule out the spontaneous reading of scripture, going to different passages. But right, it's not one or the other. Both are important. And so the other thing that's important, though, as we go to the word, is, to, is that we really acknowledge that we can't understand anything that we read on the, unless the Spirit illuminates it. So a great verse for me has been Psalm 118, sorry, 119, verse 18. 119, 18 Uh, where the psalmist simply says, open my eyes so I can see wonderful things in your law. And that's our attitude when we go to scripture. We don't hurry into it. We just stop and pause and we say, Holy Spirit, I need spiritual eyes to see this. Would you please give me spiritual eyes? There's so much in your word. Help me to find something there for me. All the education in the world is not going to help you there. It's only the spirit of God. And it comes to those who humble themselves before the word. Make a habit of sharing with others what you learn from the word. God has given us as fathers, those of you who like me are fathers. He has given us the charge to give out the word to our families. And to wield that sword to protect the little ones that are under our care. How are we giving the word to our families? Is there a time where we gather the family and we give them the word? I have been good at various times in my life at doing that, and I've mostly been pretty miserable at it. (laughs) Are you with me? But I'll tell you, the best times for our family have been when I have done this. And this is a, a, a challenge to me to pick it up again. It is our job as fathers. We are the spiritual heads of our home. It is our job to make sure that this sword is protecting our families. And so we give it to them. And we pray it over them. And when we speak to our neighbors and our coworkers who are not believers, we can be confident that this word is powerful and effective, that God will use it in their lives. We don't have to make the sword sharp. The sword is sharp by itself. But just bring out the word and let the word do its work with your unbelieving friends. Just get over your fear and give them the word and let the word do its work. Uh, The word is powerful. Go straight to the word of God when times are dark. There are days that are evil when we especially need to stand firm and resist. And then especially we need to take up the sword of the spirit. 
Give yourself to the public ministry of the word, to the preaching on Sunday mornings, and to fellowship groups throughout the week. The most devastating, the most awful famine that can possibly come over a people is a famine for hearing the word of the Lord. So while we have the word, while we can assemble to hear it preached freely without fear of imprisonment, let's gather to hear it. Let's pray. Pray for David as he preaches. Pray for those who teach in small group Bible studies. And come on Sunday mornings simply because you really need this for your week. You really need it. We all do. So we can assemble with joyful expectation that God will do his work through it. So in The Lord of the Rings, those of you who who have read it, you know that the greatest sword in all of Middle Earth is called Anduril. And that sword is also called the Flame of the West. It's the great sword of the returning king, Aragorn, that was broken and reforged. The ringwraiths tremble when they hear of this sword. But we have been given the sword of our King Jesus Christ. It's a spiritual sword for a spiritual battle. Our catechism says that Christ exercises his kingship in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. Jesus does this by his sure and powerful word, by the sword that comes out of his mouth. No president or king of the greatest country or empire has the power that the little hobbit Christian has who is armed with this sword. So Paul says, take it up and fight with it. Or as Luther said, the prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Psalm 149, verse 6, says, Let the high praises of God be in their mouth and a two-edged sword in their hand. So the Christian life is all about singing and stinging. And we can sing because we know that the outcome of this fight is victory. So in what's left of this summer, by God's grace, let's take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And let's trust our great God for the victory. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we do not understand what a great, a great gift your word is to us. Forgive us for not going to it, for leaving it on our shelves, for not studying it, for not devoting ourselves to it to what it contains. Lord, we are in a desperate spiritual battle. We are in a fight for our lives. We are surrounded by the principalities of darkness, and we cannot overcome them in our strength. We will be overcome by them if we do not take up the full armor of God and this offensive weapon that you've given to us that comes out of the mouth of Jesus Christ that slays all of his and our enemies, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Help us again today to take it up and to fight the good fight, knowing that you have won the victory. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.